Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 24 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me I've got Julie Bell. For those in the birth world, they would know her through her business called Blissful Herbs. Julie's also had, an, uh, I guess, a stint in advocacy, but prior to that, um, which I think is a really important story to tell, um, was a, around how Julie came to birth outside the system, given her history um, and early career as a nurse. So thanks for coming, Julie. Um, for those that don't know, this is a recording tool of this part of the section, but can you explain how um, your nursing interactions and and I guess how you became a nurse but how that led you to birth outside the system yeah so uh, I grew up in New Zealand although I was born in Australia grew up in New Zealand and my mum was um, working as a midwife in the New Zealand system so um, (coughs) excuse me I went through the nurses training in Auckland and um, did the obstetric rotation and during that rotation, um, I saw what hospital birthing really looked like. And uh, there were a few positive things, like there was one particular hospital where the ward was designed in a circuit so that women during labour could just walk round and round and round in the circuit before they felt you know, ready to, to deliver. Um, I thought that was quite innovative. Um, but still, the system was very obstetrically managed Um, and there were a couple of things that I saw that really struck me at that impressionable age of about 21. Um, On one occasion a a woman was having her third baby and I thought she was doing an incredible job. I couldn't believe how calm and how beautifully she was managing everything and and towards the end for some reason it was decided that she needed to be on the bed even though she spent the entire labour on her feet up till that time. And my preceptor uh, stepped in at this point and was sort of managing things. Um, and the woman suddenly sat bolt upright in the bed and she cried out, I'm scared, I'm frightened. And uh, my preceptor took her by the shoulders and forcefully pushed her back on the bed to a lying position and said, now listen to me and did what they call the take charge routine, which they'd been taught was what you should do if a woman panics. And I remember as a student nurse uh, being quite horrified by that because I felt that this woman was being handled in a way that was quite patronising and quite disrespectful. Um, And the way that women were spoken of, um, another preceptor advised me to go breezily into a postnatal ward and uh, say... Have you been in yet? Uh, while I uh, palpated a woman's breast and her fungus and her legs just really quickly to make sure that she didn't have a DVT, just like that. And I was like, you mean without actually communicating to her what I'm doing or, or why? <laughs> and, um, yeah, I was, there was just some things there that um, the way that women were spoken to with such condescension, it really actually pricked my sense of pride as a young person. And deep down inside, I just thought to myself, I do not want to be treated this way or spoken to this way when I'm having a baby. Surely there's a better way. There's got to be a better way to have a baby. Um, I'd never heard of home birth and I'd never met anybody who had a home birth. My whole motivation for researching my options was, I don't like this. I would find that degrading and humiliating. In fact, if anyone treated me that way or spoke to me like that in that patronizing manner, um, I know that I would get really angry 
And if I'm angry, I can't relax and have a baby. So I'm going to have to find a different way. Um, so, you, didn't, you didn't stay in nursing, though, did you, Julie? Uh, well, obstetric nursing. Yeah. Was that some of the reason why you left? Um, it wasn't really. I actually ended up, like, post-grad, I actually did paediatric nursing. But I was getting an inside look at what was going on in the changing New Zealand system through the eyes of my mother. So I remember um, growing up, my mother used to come home, and I remember the way she spoke about her patients and the dismissive and just not, not very honouring way that she used to speak about the patients. And I saw a positive change occur within the New Zealand system. Um, so if you consider the very good work by some strong feminist women in New Zealand, namely the lead midwife, Joan Donnelly, and our feminist um, Prime Minister, Helen Clark, they had, um, they had a collaboration going on where Joan Donnelly was able to contact Helen and say, look, we need a better midwifery system. So Joan Donnelly's sort of point of view was, um, if you have a woman-centred system, it's going to be better for everybody. And they were able to establish a midwifery system in New Zealand that was much more woman-centred and woman-led. Um, and this was much more empowering for autonomous professional midwifery, where instead of operating under a hierarchical system, it was more mutual consultation between the midwives and the obstetric staff. And I noticed the change in my mother as midwifery became less hierarchical and more empowering for her. The way that she spoke about her patients really changed. Um, and so I saw in real time with my own eyes that when there's less horizontal violence and when um, a system for midwives is more empowering for them and they are better resourced and they are better um, uh, supported, then the whole system changes for the better for the actual consumer, which is the, the birthing women. Um, and I noticed in my mother's sense of confidence um, changed and her sense of agency changed and, and just the way that she spoke about her patients completely changed. Uh, and she came home praising them instead of denigrating them. And I thought, gee, that's really interesting. And I think that's an impression that really stuck with me as a teenager and then as a young person, um, noticing that change and noticing um, the professional development in my mother and the way that she grew to become a, a senior lead midwife in the New Zealand system. You ended up so, birthing all yours at home, is that correct, Julie? Yes, yes, I did. And that was really interesting because, like I said before, I'd never met anyone who'd had a home birth and I had no information. But, so when I was over in um, Hong Kong doing volunteer work over there, um, a young woman came up to me and said, well, I'm just going to turn the music up as loud as I can and I'm going to scream as much as I want. And that was her plan for getting through childbirth. So once again, I had one of those moments like, there's got to be a better way. It's like, is that it? <laughs> and just a, an awareness of like, I don't want to do that and I don't want that to happen to me. And all of my you know, memories of what I've seen um, in the New Zealand hospitals. Um, so now in Hong Kong, when I finally became pregnant, uh, by pure fluke, I was in a library in the English-speaking section of this library and I happened to find a book by a British woman, Sheila Kitzinger. Now, given the fact that Hong Kong was a British colony at that time, hence a whole bunch of books that happened to come from English authors, right? And I was so fortunate as to stumble upon this amazing book. It was simply called Home Birth. And it was actually a photographic essay of Sheila's daughter's home birth. And as I looked through those evocative um, pages that are so symbolic, because instead of like a whole bunch of words and a whole bunch of information, this was just the visual um, photography and the documentation of what had happened at her birth. And for the first time, a, a yearning rose up in me. I want that. That's what I want. It was the first time that I felt a sort of a, a healthy envy um, to actually want what another, uh, what another woman had, had managed to obtain when it came to giving birth. And that's what actually started the whole journey of research for me. From that time on, I researched online and um, 
in the library, everything that I could find about birth options. At that point, I was thinking, when I go into labor, I'm just going to go and find a cave somewhere and hide from everybody and I'm going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized there's some, there's some options between the cave and between the hospital ward. There's actually some other alternatives there that are maybe not quite so extreme. Um, and yeah, I learned about home birth and then uh, my first home birth was in the in Ireland. Um so the Irish home birth system was was brilliant because um, there was some reimbursement available from the government. The next two babies were were back in New Zealand, uh, and again fully funded home birth and woman centred care where you get to choose your own midwife yourself. Um, and there are women in New Zealand who've had several babies, three, four, five babies, all with the same midwife. So there's this incredible sense of um, knowing your midwife, knowing your obstetric history and knowing your personality, knowing your what's important to you culturally and understanding your particular style of how you like to go about giving birth. And then you knowing that midwife well and knowing um, her style and being able to trust in her implicitly. And I believe that um, that uh, one woman, one midwife system is um, not only empowering for midwives, but it yields really um, good outcomes for women. And I just want to jump back for a sec on some of the earlier topics you discussed around your mum and seeing in seeing that culture within the hospital system and that it's not necessarily just the obstetricians um, telling the midwives what to do. Um, it's also uh, this culture of oppression of other midwives and some who were seen to be more woman-centred or supporting women, um, including... Wives eat their young. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's what, you know, that's what they consider to be horizontal violence. And that is a... Um, there's a broader picture there. Horizontal violence occurs between all humans anywhere when they're in an oppressive system. It is it is a normal, although dysfunctional, human reaction to um, hierarchical oppression of any sort. So it is so often that we see that when there is, a, especially when that uh, sense of oppression, that system of oppression is hard to articulate, uh, hard to do anything about and particularly intended to be benign so it seems almost churlish and mean and unfair to refer to it as oppression then you see these dynamics where horizontal violence occurs and then um, the victims of that oppression end up getting blamed for their own oppression so we've seen this um, we've seen this with institutional racism uh, we've seen this with um, economic exploitation and oppression um, I personally have also seen it in um, fundamentalist uh, religion where there is a very hierarchical um, gender hierarchy. And I particularly noticed this this sort of horizontal aggression um, among and between the targets of that gender-based hierarchy. It was like the, the male headship that they were uh, required to live under was not something that they could speak against because if you spoke against it then you were rebellious or you were failing to be submissive um, and then that would be like punching God in the eye you know you couldn't do that and so it seemed as if um, because there wasn't a way to contest and confront that hierarchical oppression then this horizontal violence would occur so to me, horizontal violence is a symptom of human beings under stress um, when there's actually a lack of equality and a lack of justice. And, you know, when that whole thing about midwives, um, you know, uh, eating their young, um, I see midwives, particularly in Australia, I, I think when midwives come from New Zealand and they come from the UK and they come from other places and they come to Australia and they try to work within the Australian system, then they see the contrast and they go, you guys don't have anywhere near the, the, the clinical and professional autonomy that we had back in our home country. Um, an example of that, I can give a classic example of that was my, my mum so she was really um, mentored and eventually empowered as a midwife in the New Zealand system. 
Um, and then she came back with, you know, 30 years midwifery experience and decided to get a job um, at a local hospital here in Australia. Um, and she had a, um, there was a young woman there from a more at risk population um, who was slowly hemorrhaging. And as a New Zealand midwife, my mum wanted to just get in there and decide what the treatment should be. And she was told that she was not permitted to give any medication until the obstetrician came on duty and signed it off. And that obstetrician was not due on duty for another 12 hours. And my mother was put in a situation where she either had to break the rules or put this woman's life at risk. She found that so inhumane and so unreasonable that she actually resigned over that, that incident because it was, it was really fortunate that, that that young mother did not die and she could not believe that women's lives were being put at risk for the purposes of propping up the, the egos of obstetricians and the system in general, just this, this ridiculous red tape that midwives would not be um, empowered to, um, to chart some syntocinol or something to stop um, you know, a slow hemorrhage. Um, so- oh, I know, mean, I see it. I see it now um, still, even with the midwifery standards, that there's no suturing, there's no prescribing. You know, like yeah, we're still exactly. not even at a university level training our midwives yeah. to work autonomously. And it's not yes. even, um, it's not always, yeah. yes, there's definitely medical lobbying, but I even see pushback within the system and, and some of the departments that we just want these midwives to pretty much be obstetric nurses and not... Uh, work autonomously but with that comes high rates of burnout they can't keep midwives you know like who wants to work in a system it's similar to teaching where I'm from like you know that what we call the demoralization like you know what's meant to happen yeah. but you're so confined yeah. by what the system says you have to do that you just burn out and leave yeah and this is you know when institutional function is is considered the norm and placed as a priority over the actual needs of, of the women birthing. And when you have a system where midwives are really treated as obstetric nurses and mothers are really treated as patients, you're not able to deliver a midwifery model of care. And this is what is so frustrating and does lead to high rates of burnout for midwives is that they're taught um, the ideals of midwifery practice, and then they're pushed into a, um, an institutionalized system where it's almost impossible to practice the very ideals that they've been taught and have spent so many years and so much money um, on becoming qualified and therefore permitted to practice this. Um, so there's a huge tension there. And, you know, my, I give all credit to the incredible midwives who are working in the system and navigating these stresses and trying to bring positive change. Um, but at the end of the day, there is an underlying misogyny that drives this idea of the subordination of nurses to, to doctors um, and therefore the subordination of midwif the midwifery framework to the obstetric framework, instead of it being a side-by-side -side framework and a mutually consulting framework. Um, so there's, yeah, there's some, some huge things there. Um, and then it leads to the other issues that we've seen occur in Australia that have not served uh, the interests of birthing choice and have tended to have the consequence of hurting women more and more into the obstetric model of care. So um, I remember when I first arrived here in Australia, um, I just heard a snippet on the radio when I was driving the car and it just mentioned that there was a plan to shut down 400 birth centers and birthing units uh, in the state of Victoria over a 10 year period. And my ears pricked up and I thought, is anybody hearing this? Is anybody getting this? 400 lost autonomous birthing units and small country town birthing units to be closed over the next 10 years. And then the news just went on to the next, the next topic. And I thought that's going to be massive because um, the smaller country units 
would tend to have more personal contact with the women that lived in that community, more personal connection. There would sometimes be obstetricians there who had delivered, been, you know, provided birth care for a daughter, her mother and her mother. That sort of thing was going on. Um, and it seemed to me that the, the reason given for shutting down these smaller units was for institutional profit and functionality, which meant that more and more women would be traveling an hour or more, or even sometimes several hours to get to a larger base hospital because that, that centralization of resources was going to be more economically viable when it comes to delivering maternity services to the general population. So it's sort of, you know, yeah, great in that respect, but terrible when it comes to individualized personal choices for mothers. Um, and then as yeah, we we've saw, seen, as we've um, all been, yeah, we've all seen, um, we can all list, you know, a dozen uh, actual family birth centers that were providing uh, less obstetric style care that have been closed down in the last several, last 10 or 20 years. Yeah, in the 90s, it was really prevalent. Across Australia, we lost 40% of um, rural regional birthing services. And once yeah. they're gone, it gets, as you would know, and this is more for the list to say, once they're gone, it gets very hard to reinstate, if not almost impossible. But the problem with it is yeah. if you lose birthing services, you lose children's services, you lose... Um, you know, for the community, you lose basic surgical services. So they just become geriatric yeah. units, which then, like, yes. it affects the whole community, um, which, yeah. you know, like, some of it was definitely um, specialist obstetric lobbying, like that city light safety mantra, which hasn't yeah. played out. But now, you know, they were really quick to close them. It's taken a lot yeah. of work. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like, we're playing with the devil a little bit because we are having to liaise with the Rural Doctors Association to try and get who are training GP, like rural generalists who can do like cesareans to yeah. try and get some of these rural units back open. Um, you know, so we can have, you know, predominantly midwifery led. Um, and, you know, I'm talking from Queensland where we have managed to do some of it okay, not great. There's still women travelling four or five hours to birth. Yeah. But when we've got midwifery-led services with GP obstetric backup, there is emergency cesarean services that women don't have to leave their town to have their babies, even if yeah. emergency occurs. Mm. Yeah. How, and how then, did it work in New Zealand? Like, I know there's plenty of rural, you know, and, and decent transfer pathways because that's another thing. There seems to be this thing in Australia well if you have to transfer a woman you've failed yeah it's it's interesting to me that um freestanding birthing units are common in New Zealand and I remember you know going and visiting my friend in in, in uh, Christchurch and down the end of the road there was a little unit little brick unit it looked a lot like a maternal child and health center would look here and she explained to me that it was a birth center. Women went there and had their babies. And if there was a need to transfer them, they would be transferred to uh, about half an hour drive into Christchurch City to one of the major hospitals there. And this was, you know, we, we hear so much. And, you know, it bothers me when uh, the rhetoric around this stuff, it seems to be an imitation of the way they talk in America about these things. And I'm just like, could we please take a clue from New Zealand? instead of from America. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that you have confident, autonomous midwives running freestanding birth centres, local women, uh, highly rated by the local women who were flocking there to have their babies, and there's a sensible and functional transfer system when transfer is needed. And that, and as you said, like, it's not, there's no sort of... Uh, implying that if you transfer from a home birth or from a birth center that something has gone wrong that the birth has been botched is a word that they like to use no that's actually consistent with proper care and you know the if you look at the rates of transfer um among and you know i I 
I'd kind of having these choices between having a home birth with your own midwives attending, going to a local birth center, if that's the sort of birth you want, or being able to check into a major hospital and find yourself a private obstetrician if you want. These are the choices that are available in New Zealand and they're all free, except for the private obstetrician. You don't get a financial penalty because you've chosen to go to, chosen to have a home birth. And that's the, you know, I had, had my first baby uh, in uh, West Cork in Ireland. Then I had two babies um, at home in New Zealand. And then I had my fourth baby here in Australia. So being able to compare three different sets of um, birth services. I've also attended a birth in America. I've attended another birth in North Thailand. And I attended um, NCT childbirth classes um, in England. So that has given me a little bit of a, you know, comparing the systems. So in, um, in Ireland, uh, they, ha they have a home birth association over there. And the two midwives who supported me at the time of my birth are still working. I'm so proud of them. It's wonderful. <laughs> so I just looked up the Irish Home Birth Society, found myself um, a, a cork midwife, uh, and I was an hour from the local hospital. Um, I found her when I was, I was already about 37 weeks pregnant. And she questioned me very closely to see if my ideas about wanting a home birth were founded in uh, good common sense or if I had some kind of, you know, she, she wasn't, she, she would have to serve me as a sole midwife without a backup one hour away from the nearest hospital as a primate who she didn't know. I was just suddenly showing up from out of space. So she wanted to know that I was a good bet. And when she heard my stories and my reasons for wanting a home birth, she decided to take a chance on me. And I ended up having a beautiful home birth um, in West Cork with this extremely hands-off midwife. And she had been trained in England. And she was a perfect example of the way that midwives are trained to be midwives in that system and not trained to just merely be obstetric nurses who have to you know fit with the obstetric model of care so she was able to provide me with the midwifery model of care and I had a completely hands-off birth um, and in many ways the care that she provided me set the bar for me and how I was going to treat women and, and support women and speak to women later on when I became a doula now, financially, uh, we paid for this midwife up front and the Irish government reimbursed us 800 pounds towards the fees that we paid the midwife. And I just thought, isn't that a brilliant system where mothers or parents pay up front, but then they receive reimbursement according to, the, according to what they've had to pay out. And I thought that was very reasonable. It didn't cover everything, but it made home birth a viable, financially viable option for us. And it was amazing. Um, then in New Zealand, uh, I was able to interview and select the midwives that I wanted, uh, who I felt I had a good fit with. And that was completely covered by the New Zealand system. I'd grown up and been educated in New Zealand, so I was eligible, um, even though I was going there from um, the work that I was doing in Asia at that time. So I went to New Zealand, stayed there for three or four months, had a baby, had a break from all of the work I was doing in Asia, and it was completely covered by the New Zealand government. Then, um, after more years of work in Asia, we eventually moved to Australia. I'd never had a baby in Australia. I didn't know anything about birth services and how they worked in Australia. And in the end, I just en ended up feeling incredibly sorry for my Australian countrywomen going, I want better for you, you deserve better, this is not good enough. If places like England and Holland and Ireland and New Zealand can provide these kinds of services and choices for women, there is no reason why we can't have that in Australia. And I guess that was my entry into birth activism here in Australia. Oh, I can't hear you, That's strange.
that's because I was muted, sorry. But yeah, I think having um, that global lens as well, and you've seen, you know, how, I guess, or what the potential could be for women. Like, I mean, yeah. we hear of it um, because I've only ever birthed in Australia and I've birthed in a rural setting, in a metro hospital, in a birth centre and had home births. Um, yeah. And you hear about this utopia that is in other countries, but actually to see it and experience it firsthand is certainly, yeah. um, like, I guess, like a new lens to hear about um, from, yeah. you know, from, from yourself. Um, talk to me about... So I want to cover two more questions before we go um, about what you see, um, because I imagine it would be very difficult um, in a medicalised system um, if you are often supporting women during home births, what you see as a doula. And then I want to talk about why you think we've got a feminist issue. Yeah. I think, you know, we're in a rapidly changing world and society and the health system here in Australia you know, if we're going to continue to take our notes from America, we're going to end up in a great big mess like they have over there. And that's not a good plan. So, you know, we are seeing um, that home birth independent midwives here in Australia are not supported. They're not supported by insurance. They're not supported financially. And they're not supported professionally. And that's unfair. And so what that does is it places our, our, our independent midwives are national treasures. And they're the only ones that are sincere about actually providing options and choices for birthing women. So, you know, we see them just getting picked off. They either get picked off because of they, they get reported or because, uh, you know, they get, there's, a, there's been an unfortunate demise um, or because uh, insurance won't support them or because they just get burnt out. And so we, we're chewing through our, our independent midwives at a great rate. And as a result of this, increasingly, there are women, and especially in the more sort of fringe areas and remote areas like where I live, where it's really, really expensive to hire a private midwife or the, they've lost their private midwife because something bad has happened um, and they've had to leave the country or they've become deregistered or because they just got burnt out and decided they could not do this anymore. Um, so their options have been narrowed. Uh, the remaining midwives are taking on, um, you know, a far too huge of a load, which places them at risk for burnout. Um, and their local birth centre has shut down. Their local regional hospital has shut down. And the only option is to travel an hour and a half or two hours to the nearest massive hospital down the line. And so we are seeing women free birth because that is the only reasonable option. And so one of the things that I'm noticing is that more women are considering the free birth option and more women are considering training themselves to support free births. So my advice for any young woman, because you know the women that, that, that are, are grappling with these issues now are women who are now about the age of my own daughters. So when I think, what would I say to you and how can I encourage you? I'm literally speaking, what will I tell my own daughters as they approach their childbearing years? And the first thing that I would say is never mind what the system offers or does not offer. Don't consult the menu of birth choices before you figure out what is right for you. Instead, go inside your own mind and heart and your own imagination and imagine you your own unique self giving birth to your baby in your imagination. Where are you? How are you? What are you doing? How are you feeling? Who is with you? What does it feel like? And answering those questions inside your imagination will give you some incredible clues about the kind of birthing person you are and the way you want to approach this. And having settled on that, then look to see how you can fit your personal vision for your birth with the options that either are or aren't on offer. And I find that a really good baseline to start with is assume that you're going to have a free birth. Assume you're going to stay at home and have a DIY birth, okay? 
prepare yourself, prepare your partner, prepare your family, your home, and as if you your only option was to have a free birth, okay? So if there is societal collapse, God forbid, if there is climate change, change disaster, you will be so glad that you prepared yourself this way. So do the research, do the homework, find people who've gone before and done it, balance the risks and the benefits, find out everything you can about how birth really works when it's left alone and equip yourself in every way that you can. Now, having done that, if you can then add a layer onto that basic preparation and education that you've done, where you can find somebody that you love and trust, who you believe loves and trusts you, who you can invite into that mix, then that's great. If you can find somebody with qualifications and expertise who you can invite into that mix, fantastic. If you have got a suitable uh, birth service or institution in your area and you feel that they are going to be honoring and supportive of what you've decided in your mind to do, that's fantastic as well. But there is the foundational, the foundation stone has to be, if I had to give birth to this baby by myself, what would I do? How would I feel? And how would I manage it? Start there and then work up. Instead of starting at the top and working down, work from the bottom up. That would be my advice that I would give to, to my own daughters. Um, and I think that as we move into a, an uncertain future, the more that we can do to educate and empower ourselves and each other about how our bodies work and about how to take care of our unborn and being born and newly born babies, the better off we'll be and the better off we'll be able to offer that support and that care to one another. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's really powerful. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. It's, yeah. What's that? Sorry. Yeah, I said that's really powerful. And I think, yeah. um, you know, whilst free birth, you know, for a lot of women, it's not even on their radar. It is true, though. Like, yeah. let's deal with your own stuff first, um, yeah. you know, at that level, um, because you know, we jump to, you know, often choices that, that don't even align because we haven't actually sat with ourselves and decided what we want, um, yeah, yeah. you know, autonomously first. Um, yeah. Julie, can you talk to me why you think birth is a forgotten feminist issue? Like, why do we have such poor outcomes? And, you know, that there'll be the lefties that'll be all about reproductive rights but they forget about birth and um then we've yeah, got yeah. you know the right of politics that are yeah they're they don't mind um birth but as long as you stay home like afterwards so yeah we're kind oh of you know, gosh, like with this place a... in between <laughs> how long do you want me to talk for <laughs> um yes it's there's a, a sort of like um an overlap there there's an interesting Venn diagram sort of a thing there where um, second, second wave feminism somehow missed the how important um, having choices and autonomy around childbirth is such an important part of the feminist cause. Um, and then there have been some really anti-woman and anti-feminist forces that have actually undermined optimal maternity care in a lot of our very uh, sort of, you know, capitalist so-called democratic countries. And I think it's really difficult for women. It's like, this is a modern de democracy and I live in an egalitarian society. Tell me, why am I not receiving that as soon as I become a, a woman in labor? Like, how, how does that work? How does you know, these rights that I have come to expect as being normal in my everyday life, suddenly I have to check them in at the door just because I've crossed into a maternity unit to have my baby. And that's been incredibly demoralizing and discouraging um, for many women. So, you know, why, why are our birthing, the birthing services that we offer, why are they not more empowering and more respectful of women's autonomy and women's right to choose? Um, you know, my body, my birth type stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting issue. Um, I see a lot of incredibly 
anti-feminist forces at work in the wider world at the moment. Um, so one of them is pornography. And I think that the proliferation of what I call the pornification of society has not done anything to upgrade and uplift the status of women in society. I think it's actually led to further objectification. So although we all want to be wonderfully sex positive, and I'm all for that, um, because that's really an important part of affirming um, our humanity, that's really important. But I do not accept that the, the, the intersect of pornography with uh, you know, the capitalist sort of profit before people type model has created an abomination that is actually incredibly harmful um, to genuine sexual intimacy. And it's it, the objectification of um, women's bodies and women's bodies parts has actually undermined our ability to see a woman in labor as a whole person. So you know, these things have a, have a filter through effect. So there's that that's at work, which I think is one of the worst things that's happened in recent times is high-speed internet porn um, to really undermine rights for women. Um, it's caused a proliferation of um, sexual abuse and rape culture. It's also caused a pr proliferation of sex trafficking. And does this affect birth and birth choices? Yes, I think it does. I think it actually affects how women feel about themselves. I think that when women are struggling with porn addiction themselves or they're dealing with a partner who's got porn addiction, I think it alters how they feel about themselves and their own bodies. Um, this is a very graphic example, but we've got GPs and social workers in Australia who are dealing with this. They're dealing with young teens who feel that they feel pressured into anal sex because it's the norm in pornography. And then what you have is a situation if they're having reconstructive surgery on their bowel when they're 14 years old and then they're 24 and they're in labor and they need to soften and relax and open and trust in that incredibly powerful way that you need to in order to bring a baby down through your pelvis, there's issues. So that, that's a very, uh, I mean, you, you know, graphic example of the sort of knock-on effect. But um, if you, there are many, many far more subtle and hard to put your finger on um, effects of the negative impacts of porn on the, on the well-being and the actual health, physical health of, of women. Um, the other factor that I can see is the uptick in um, sort of right-wing populist type um, culture war type stuff. So this stuff in, in America that we, they were seeing in particular was, um, was grounded in a white evangelical Christian culture war type um, idea uh, with very strong ideas about controlling the role and the dress and the sexuality of women. Um, and I, you know, growing up in that culture, I was very aware of those sorts of um, beliefs and attitudes, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s. But this sort of more alt-right type um, politics that we're seeing pop up in different places around the world, there's a real undercurrent of misogyny in it. It doesn't matter if it's fundamentalist Islam, fundamentalist Christ Christianity or fundamentalist alt-right uh, sort of modern type patriarchy. It doesn't matter if it's the the if it's the what they call the purity movement, which is about hyper modesty controlling the the dress and the the, the sexuality of women, or whether it's um, uh, objectifying women through you know hypersexualization, you know in the media and um, you know on social media and stuff like that. All of these forces combine to create a general climate in which young women are coming up and they're really just getting hit on all sides in a way that makes them think that their own bodies are not really their own. So when a girl grows up in a society in, in this kind of culture, and this is the milieu that she's in, and she's begun to project away from herself how she really feels about her body, she thinks she's not skinny enough. She thinks that her periods are disgusting. 
she thinks that body hair is gross and she's got to eradicate any vestige of it. Um, she thinks that she has to have her body look and act and a certain way in order to be acceptable by mainstream society. Um, these things affect how she feels about her birthing body. You know, you can't be not okay about just about every sign of um, mature womanhood appearing in your body and then suddenly be completely fine about using that birthing body um, in such a, an incredibly, um, you know, powerful way. There's a, there's a, there's a, so what I find is that, you know, with working with women, there's, there's, there's often an incredible healing to be done. So if she has, um, if she's been sexually objectified, um, if she's been sexually repressed because of, uh, you know, uh, patriarchal religion, um, if she's been sexually abused, um, if she's had an eating disorder, if she's stressed about not getting fat or, you know, um, worried about whether childbirth is going to damage her vagina, um, these sorts of things, um, the really, really negative picture that we have of birthing women that comes through media where women are victims and they're stuck on a bed and they're screaming with agony and pain and they need to be rescued and they need help. And we very, very rarely depict women um, in media as strong and powerful. So even if a woman heroically um, gives birth to a baby in an, in, um, on the side of the road, um, the focus when that story is reported is, you know, we've got the, the case of the disappearing or the invisible birthing woman. Uh, and it's the, the people that, who was right alongside her while she was doing that heroic thing who are depicted as the heroes of the story. So we see this again and again, and it affects women. They, when, they, when they're pregnant and when they're, when they're in labor, it's often they can have an underlying sense of themselves as um, a victim and as helpless and as, as being in need of rescue and seeking help from an external source rather than going within to become attuned to their own incredible uh, inner resources that they have for navigating this massive adventure of giving birth to their baby. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of social influences out there in the ether that can be affecting a woman's subconscious when she's pregnant and she's trying to imagine herself uh, in the throes of labor, going through that incredible journey and giving birth to her baby and unpacking some of those negative influences and taking back your sense of personal power, your sense of personal dignity and um, your sense of confidence in your own body. Um, so at the end of the day, some of the most radical things that birthing women can do for themselves is body love and body acceptance. Um, the other thing is I would just love for, for birthing women to just know this as they're approaching birth is that what makes birth work is oxytocin. Literally, that is what is the physical driver of birth. And oxytocin is a hormone. And oxytocin is called the hormone of love. And it's released in the pituitary gland of the hypothalamus, which is right in the very deep part of the brain, right next to the emotional center of the brain, which means that quite literally, love works. So when you want your birthing body to work, start with loving it. Start with loving you and start with loving women generally. In a world that is targeting so much hate towards the concept of woman, you be a force of love. Love yourself, love other women, love the concept of woman generally. And then when you're trying to figure out what are the right birth choices for you and what's the right birth venue for you and who are the right birth team for you, let love be your guide. Make sure that you set up around yourself a circle of love and respect. And for me, equality is how you spell love. 
So equal power, equal respect. Um, so many women are a little bit nervous about taking up their power and asserting their right to be equal and to be respected as a sentient decision-making equal when it comes to their birth. Uh, and they're trying to consider and balance um, the needs and the opinions and the egos of all of these people around them. I'm like, no, babe, put yourself first. The best way you can love your husband right now is to selfishly put yourself first. And the best way you can love your baby and keep your baby safe is put yourself first. So love is the key and love is the answer. And I just really want to encourage us all as we move forward through these incredibly uncertain times. And we can see social factors, economic factors, political factors that are incredibly concerning and alarming. At the end of the day, we hold a special power because we're the ones that give birth. We're the ones that conceive a life. And we're the ones that know that love is what makes birth work. And that's what we've got to protect more than anything else. The love for ourselves, the love for each other, the love for our babies and our children and protecting and preserving a safe circle of love around about us as we give birth. And if we focus on that, I really feel that no matter what chaos and craziness is, uh, is storming all around us, we can hold that we can hold to that and it, it can become like an oasis of peace and safety not only for us as the ones who are doing the hard work of actually giving birth but for the people that we invite into that space um, so i don't want to idealistically suggest that this is the answer to everything but i'm saying it's an incredibly important ingredient to have in your birth plan yeah, thanks so much, Julie. I really appreciate your time. For um, those who are listening, I'll drop your website, Blissful Herbs. I've used some of your products. They're great. Um, but also, I suggest following um, Julie Bell on Facebook um, and Instagram because I really enjoy some of your wisdom drops as well um, that are outside of birth and just, you know, the lens, you know, that we, all the stuff you've kind of like nicely woven through today's podcast. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Alicia. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses, I've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionist, that type A personality, and those who've been indoctrinated um, into that people pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.